Hello and welcome to the Game Pit. This is the third in our SM Preview specials and my name's Sean. Hey, it's Ronan here. And for the last time this year, we are going to be taking you through 10 upcoming releases this very week at the Spiel at Essen 2014 with both chosen five games we thought might be interesting to discuss. So my five choices are Pantalos, Waggle Dance, Malay, Neptune and The Ancient World. Sean, what have you chosen? Well, Ronan, mine are Hyperborea, Clinic, Castle Crush, Cult Express and Hoyuk. We are members of the Dice Tower Network where you can find lots and lots of the finest in board gaming podcasts. You can also catch all our episodes on 2d6.org alongside the very best in written, video and audio gaming goodness. Let's get on to the last of these previews. So, first up from me, it is a game called Hyperborea. It is from Asmodee, amongst others, and designed by Andrea Chiavesio, who we've already mentioned in our first SM Preview special, because he's the designer of Kingsburg and Olympus, and you can also throw in Arcanum into that. It's also designed by Pierluca Zizi, and he joined Andrea on Arcanum. He also did Asgard and Dark Tales. It plays two to six players in a time frame suggested of about 90 minutes. This is a civilization stroke city building game with some area control, deck and pool building, and variable player powers. So, players choose their individual race or faction. And the board is set up according to the player numbers, with a number of hexagon tiles laid out to form the player area and the world in which the players are going to explore and control. The tiles depict various terrain types, and some of them have cities on them, and some of them have runes. And these are for players to control with the runes being guarded by ghosts. Players have a player board, a set of 10 unique miniatures in their colour, and a cloth bag to hold and draw coloured civilization cubes from. The colour cubes are how you perform your actions in this game. As they are drawn, players will assign them to the actions on their board with certain colours and numbers of cubes needed to do each action. The colours represent war, trade, movement, building, knowledge and growth. There are also grey cubes and these represent corruption and waste and they're basically going to make your action selection much less effective. Among the list of actions players can do are exploration, war, growth, trade and progress. There are also a range of advanced technologies that players can obtain and use to give them more in-depth actions and more things that they can do during their turn basically. On the player boards themselves there's a civilization track and the areas in this match the colours of the cubes. The players can advance the tracks in order to obtain extra cubes to place in their bags. So that's why they're going to drive what colour cubes go into their bags, really. With the bags, as I said, players can now decide on a path or paths to take and tailor their cube gathering to match the direction they are moving in tactically. On the board, players are going to place their miniatures and they're going to do battle. They're going to take these cities and the ruins and they're going to give them extra actions and things that they can do as well. And they're going to give them extra bonuses just to help them along their way. Points are awarded for various things. 
including killing ghosts, killing other players' miniatures, the civilization cubes, control of territories is one of the big things you have to be wary of, advanced technologies, and you can also obtain the victory point crystals, and these are collected during the game. And that is a very quick overview on Hyperborea, Ronan. Yeah, it's interesting that Andrea is combining with another designer again, and the guy designed Asgard and Al Rashid as well. Games that had interesting elements to them, but weren't necessarily the biggest hits. Asgard had a difficult rulebook. Al Rashid had that really difficult typeface used in a different font. The fact that Andrea seems to be working with all these people, Sean, is it driving creativity, do you think? Do you see lots of interesting, innovative things coming from him? I think in this game, definitely. I do think this game is innovative in so much as this cube drawing system that they've got. It's like a deck building, but with cubes. We talked about King's Pouch earlier, and there's a similar kind of mechanism going on here, but I think you control more what you actually put in your bag. But whether the game is any good or not, we'll get to, or whether we think it's any good, we will get to. But I think definitely there's an interesting innovation in this game Ronan. yeah it seems that bag building is sort of the theme of this essay you said we talked about king's pouch there's one or two others as well but the names are escaping me but do you think that mechanism integrates well into this theme it looks like plastic miniatures on a map a conflicty sort of a game and yet that bag building is quite euro-y it's quite sort of mechanical it doesn't really flow with a conflict theme and is this even a dudes on the map a fighty plastic on map sort of a game no, I don't think it is. I just think the fighting is actually just circumstantial. It happens. It's a way to dominate areas. I think it's all about dominating those areas and getting your little bonuses that are going to help you on your player boards to, to get those actions that put more cubes in your bag. I think the actual fighting, it's on the periphery of the game. It's not integral to it at all. Yeah, I think you called a game in the first preview, I can't remember which one it was, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Is this a sheep in wolf's clothing, Ronan? What are you going to steal my win for? (laughs) But that's what I think it is. People saw it, and they saw sort of the superficial theme to it, and they started liking it to the likes of Cyclades and Kemet, and the idea that it's a blinged-up game, big price point, got conflict in it, yet with different Euro elements. Now, that sounds great to me, but... Like you say, the conflict does seem much more peripheral in this game than it is in Cyclades and Kemet. And in all honesty, I don't find this game components-wise and sort of, most importantly, the graphic design. The art is fantastic, but the graphic design, I do not find it at all as visually appealing as what you might think would be its competitors. But are they? We're saying that that's the look of the game looks like it's going to be competing with Kemet and Cyclades and that type of game. But it, it feels really to me like it's a big, big Euro game. It's all about that collection of resources and driving your economic engine rather than the actual fighting. The only thing I do think lets it down design-wise is those player boards are a bit blocky for me. But they they seem to work functionally, correctly and fine. I think the board looks stunning. It's easier to pick out those terrain types. Now, do those terrain types actually mean a whole lot? So do you need to pick out the terrain types in these, Rodan? I actually think the board looks ugly, mate, to all honesty. I really don't like the look of those tiles. Oh, really? There's nothing on those tiles. There's uh, maybe a city or a ruin in one of them. They're huge for no particular reason. I think there's too few of them in the game. 
There's no exploration hardly at all. Everyone's within one or two spaces of each other. It's like they've chucked on the wrong theme to the mechanisms. Don't like the look of the player boards. They're like they belong to a different sort of a game. I don't think it is a deep hero. You, you just get three cubes to use each turn. It's not like you can really plan for huge strategic moves. And, and I know you can build up what developments you take and how you push in certain areas and get certain cues, but it doesn't feel very deep to me. It very much feels like it's sitting in the middle of different games. It's it's not pretty enough for a certain genre or a certain niche in the market. It's not deep enough for another niche. It's themed in a very odd way, and the mechanisms just don't fit into that theme. I think... Judging from the feedback from Gen Con, and there's been a lot of hype about this game from Gen Con, and there's been also been the detractions as well for it, the main thing that's come through is that it is actually got a quite a barrier to entry in this game. A lot of people are saying you have to play it two or three times because integral to it again are those technology cards and that's how you're going to chain your actions together to get three four five six cubes out at a time and that's when the cubes are going to really matter so people are saying their first go it didn't really work well once they understood the mechanisms and had the actual play of the game it started to come together so whether that's going to happen for me i don't know it's interesting that that's the main message you got out post gen con because the huge thing that I picked up from what people were saying was the concerns over the possible gaps and loopholes in the in the rules to the game. The fact that there's infinite loops that have had to be FAQ'd and more than one, and certain powers and setups made things unbalanced. I know the head developer's been very active on Board Game Geek. He's been putting out fires with the community. It's great that they are supporting the game, actually. That is a positive. But people are finding strange results from power combos the fact that you can create continued resets so they have to completely change an important rule in the game and then the change rule people don't like so they changed the rule said you cannot keep any cubes hanging around on your board once you do a reset they all have to go because people were just laying all their cubes out without taking the actions for them and then continually resetting because you have that weird thing where your warriors come out of a city and then just walk straight back in again to do an action and out and in and out and in and you could just do that every turn so they changed the rule said now you can't keep any cubes between turns or between resets rather and people say well that doesn't work now i can't plan ahead now you've made it incredibly light so concerns there as well sean about the game yeah definitely that was one of the things that also came out from gen con i am concerned definitely about it it would be wrong of me to say that i wasn't concerned about that when i've sort of lambasted sort of Greenland for for instance for not having that finished rule set and and things like that so definite concerns needs to be fixed for me to really buy it I will be keeping a close eye on that and the forums and the community to see if people are now saying it's fixed before I, I make that final decision on it Hyperborea there's just something missing here for me I think it's too abstract I think it's very much a set of mechanisms with a heavy theme slapped on that doesn't really fit i think the art is amazing the game some of it looks fantastic but some of it really doesn't i don't like the map i don't like the entire graphic design some of the mechanisms are weird the just walking your dude into a city in and out of a city in order to trigger stuff that's just strange and i feel like the map is also too small for this type of game i've said it all before it feels too gamey 
the mechanisms aren't hidden enough for me. It feels like a game system that they were trying to find a theme for, and they chose high fantasy, which I think was a poor choice for this particular set of mechanisms. And for me, Hyperborea is a trap. I actually think it looks really good, apart from those player boards, which are so-so. They're not terrible. I think the terrain all looks amazing. I think the the hex guns in the middle look amazing. I think the individual player pieces all tie into something that I would look for in a game anyway. I like this new bag building innovation, if you want to call it that. I know it isn't the only one around there, but I like this and I like I want to see this explored more. I think it's very interesting. I think there's a lot of routes in this game to take to victory. There seems to be anywhere, a lot of paths that you can go down. So for me, it really intrigues me. And it intrigues me to the point where I'm just going to say it's a treasure. But I'm waiting for that final rule book before I make my decision in Essen. That is Hyperborea. So the first game I want to introduce this episode is Panthalos. This is from the designer Bernd Eisenstein, who's known for Peloponnese, Palmyra, Porto Carthago and Pax and published by Iron Games. Iron Games are Burned Eisenstein's own company. This is for two to five players. It takes around 75 minutes. It is themed around trading in the Mediterranean, one of everyone's favorite themes. The twist on this one is that you're also fighting a war against titans from the underworld, and you may also be pitting your teams of titans against each other. This really is the love child of a couple of gaming themes, I think. So each player is going to get dice to represent their workers, which is another mechanism which is becoming very popular. You also get one leader worker, and you're going to get a bunch of discs to represent yourself. And you are representing yourself on a board which represents the city of Corinth, which is where all the action is going to take place. You're going to be using those dice and your leader worker to collect goods to upgrade, and then you can ship them for points, or you can sell them to merchants for bonuses, which are going to help you in-game. You're also going to be attempting to get titans, build up your forces, and those titans and the titans of the underworld come in one of the four elements, earth, air, fire, water. And you're also going to be able to put higher level workers, for example, in a place called the polis, ongoing game bonuses you can be able to upgrade your workers through experience you're going to be able to turn workers into leaders which gives you some bonus end game scoring so generally normal sort of thing you find a work placement game get goods ship goods sell them to merchants upgrade your your dice levels off your workers however you're also thinking about titans now the placements on the board where you put the workers require workers to be minimal levels experience. So there's areas there for level two, level three, level four workers, etc. So a level six worker or a leader can go anywhere. And all your workers are going to start on level two. So that's one of the considerations. After everyone has taken their actions and done this stuff and taken their goods, what have you, the underworld will attack. And the players get to choose to use the titans they've built up and the reinforcement tokens, which you've been able to earlier claim with workers, to battle the underworld or not. If you choose not to, you place a disc in the crypt and that can accelerate the end of the game as if the crypt gets filled up with too many discs, and that depends upon the number of players, then the game will end early because the underworld has actually destroyed Corinth and you'll score early. Otherwise, the game's going to go eight rounds. There's a final part for each round and players who have chosen to can now select another player to duel. Now, each person in the game can only be challenged once per round. The element in which this duel is going to take place is decided by the location of the defender's leader worker. So, 
You've played a round of worker placement. Then you get attacked by the underworld, which you may choose to attempt to defeat or not. And the last thing is you may fight each other. So the attacker then plays a titan or reinforcement tile. And as long as the vendor can match the strength of that attacker, then it's okay and we carry on going. And the attacker can go again and the defender goes again and carry on going. This happens either until the attacker quits or the defender cannot match the strength of the attacker. Whoever's the winner is going to either take four points for winning that duel, or they're going to claim double eight points and place a disc in the crypt, which is where the discs go if you lose a battle to the underworld. And that can accelerate the end of the game. The loser of the battle has to demote one of their workers, so one of their dice loses one level of experience, and they may both pay one of their discs in order to take back one of the titans that was involved in the fight. Now, at the end of a round, the workers of you need to rest, you won't be able to use them next round, but your leaders don't. They will be available to you. At the end of the game, as well as the points you scored for shipping during the game, you're going to score points for all the level of your workers. So a level five worker is worth five points. The leader you start with and any workers you've been able to level up to become a leader score seven points. And goods you have of the same type as you shipped previously are going to score you points. Sean, I'm pretty sure that that explanation was absolutely clear and you know exactly what's going on in this game um um well um, um <laughs> it's at the end of a hard few weeks learning rules looking at rule books looking at designs of games in preparation for the mayhem that is s and ronan maybe mm, it's, it's been a long month Sean. it's been a long month maybe it's rules blindness or maybe this is the most contrived, complicated, weirdly laid out, rule-heavy game ever. I couldn't work out. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to go that far. No, it probably is an exaggeration. But the rules blindness has set in to a large degree for me. But Ronan, this one really did confuse me. I couldn't work out anything from it. It definitely took... Three or four reads of the rule book just to give that rules explanation, which I didn't feel was very clear. And so it's a thing with Bernard Eisenstein, though. He takes games and he tries to put like a different approach on them, right? He he takes sort of generic themes and he tries to twist them. In Palmyra, which we got all excited about last lesson, it was tile laying. You had two different types of workers and they followed your tiles around. And they scored in two different ways. And it was interesting. He, he put a bit of a twist on it. Porto Cathago, a game I go on about quite a bit. I like it because all your workers are also your currency and they act as your point scorers and they do all kinds of things. You're, you've got a pool of pieces which are not just your workers but have also other functions in the game. And I really like that because managing that pool is important. Peloponnese, you get disaster throwing at you all the time. Again, a little twist. This twist, this is clearly an attempt to bring some interaction which actually is a pretty dry and simple work placement economic game. Get some good, ship them. Get some good, ship them. Easy as that. So you can see what he's trying to do. Sean, talk me through the theme again. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's muddy. Um, uh, yeah, I think we need to go straight back to the arms. He's really muddied the waters of a box standard worker placement with a incredibly weird and imaginative theme There's aspects of this that I really do find appealing. 
I really like the combat aspect. I like the fact that you're going to have to build up for combat with each other and with the underworld. It's something you really don't see in a worker placement. He's really brought something new to the table. But the way that's explained and the theme behind it is just all confusing, Ronan. I can see what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to balance the need to keep your economy going, keep getting in goods, and sort of using your disc effectively, shipping and getting good merchant bonuses with that need for the jewels and defending the underworld. But there's another game we're going to talk about a bit later which has a somewhat similar theme in Ancient World. It's a different approach, but somewhat similar. The problem that I have with this one, especially when in comparison to Ancient World, is that this is fiddly. It's got mechanisms that interact all over the board with each other as you resolve these actions, but there's really no thematic sense to some of the really fiddly rules and the way that certain areas of Corinth interact with other areas of Corinth, and you go, why? Why would that happen? I don't understand why. Why does my disc go in if I win a duel and score double points, which is the same place where discs go when I lose to the underworld. I don't get it. And that disc, by the way, I put in is going to score me double points, but then it's going to lose me points at the end of the game. It's just a lot of moving parts. And it feels to me like the sort of rules, because they're not intuitive and they're not thematically linked, that you learn the game, you play it, you come back to try and play it a couple of weeks later and you've forgotten all those little rules and you have to learn it all over again. And that's just a pain. Absolutely. You said at the top of your deliberations that Mr. Eisenstein likes to take a game mechanic and switch it around, do something different with it. Has he therefore taken a really nice looking board with nice colours and made it into a bland mess? Oh, oh. This this game looks awful. It looks like it's been shipped from 1964. And it's faded over time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, someone's upset this evening. It's it's awful. There's no rhyme or reason to the board. It looks like it's just things shoved onto it. The colours are so bland, I want to fall asleep looking at it. It's a terrible design. I don't think the design's that terrible. No, you're wrong. I might be a little bit sort of (laughs) numbed to the Iron Games games because they never look amazing. You know, like, the artwork on Palmyra wasn't great. It was I, clear. I thought it was. I thought it was a decent game. It was clear. The colours were vibrant. Everything worked on it. This, you look at this, and as you said, unless you know this game inside and outside, and you're playing it every week, it's really hard to pick things out. Yeah, the iconography is a bit touchy. I would agree with that. And I'm not really particularly defend there. It's just the fact that we know that it's a small publisher. He does it pretty much all himself, so... I mean, I've given some games such a kick in for looking <laughs> bad that I suppose I had better join in here. But it doesn't look great. I will agree with you. Not as bad, I think, as you're making out, but but not great. Okay, well, Ronan, I want to sum up, and it's nothing I haven't said already, but this game is so confusing. It's so in-depth. You use the word fiddly, and that's exactly it. Have I got the patience and the time to learn this game and keep playing it no i don't it doesn't look great either so definite trap for me 
I think that all of Iron Games releases before have been worth a look. They've been worth a play. I've enjoyed most of them. I'm not the biggest fan of all of them. Peloponnese, for example, I don't really get on with, but I'm glad I played it. And it's an interesting game. This is the first one where I just go, you know, it's not an instant buy for me. And I'm not going to take it home and give it a good sort of playthrough and learn it because it just seems too much going on. And even his track record of interesting games to me, this one seems in sane i hope someone i know gets a copy i want to give it a try but amongst all the games coming out i can't recommend it on the back of that rule book and as sean says it doesn't look great so this one unfortunately panthalos is a trap for me so my next game is a game called clinic and this was self-published or they're called the Age of Steam team, and they're responsible really for a lot of the Age of Steam's expansions, fan expansions. The designer is Olban Viard. He designed Town Center in the past. It plays two to four players in a time frame suggested of 120 minutes. So what is Clinic? It's an economic building game where players try to construct a medical facility with some tile laying and pick up and deliver elements to it as well. Each player is going to begin with a player board, which depicts a 3D representation of a building. This will be where they build their facility or facilities, because you can branch off. And there is also a common board that houses doctors, nurses, staff, and these are all for hire. And there's also patients that need medical attention on this board. The general idea of the game is to hire your medical staff and make them and your facility as efficient as possible at curing the patients in order to earn money. Your profits are then invested and this is directly where the victory points are gained. In each round of six, players initially and simultaneously choose one of three action tiles. The three action tiles are build, where you can build treatment areas, car parks, special rooms and more. You can hire, this is where you hire your doctors, your nurses, your staff, and you can admit the patients who are starting to queue up, as I said, on the main board. Once the players have chosen the action, they will then execute that action in order. Next, the players will move. Cubes will move either into or around your facility, and each time they do this, it will cost you time. And this is usually in blocks of five minutes. Time costs money in this game, and each batch of 15 minutes will detract from the money and subsequently the points you earn. There are things like waiting rooms that you can actually build. These are one of the special rooms, and these can be put in to mitigate against your time loss. Next up is the business phase, and this is where your money is calculated and your points and ultimately popularity is earned. Popularity is their word for the victory points. There's a few other bits of information. The building, as I said, it's a 3D representation of the building. It's, it's not just a flat building on the board where you look down on it. You can build upwards, adding new floors to your clinic. And for each member of staff and patient you have, they also bring cars into your clinic. And this is going to hamper your efforts to expand as cars must be contained in your building area. Doctors and patients come in different coloured cubes, representing the experience and skill of a doctor and the seriousness of the illness affecting the patient. Only the more experienced doctors can handle the more serious illnesses. So it ranges from white to red, so only a red doctor can cure a red patient. 
There's a lot going on in this game, Ronan. I've tried to give as good an overview as I can, but there we have it, clinic. All right, first question. Yes. When did you become a hipster? <laughs> you are you checking out with your only 200 copies of a game in existence and you booked one? I booked one that I can't get to in time to pick up, so I'm, I'm a failed <laughs> hipster. <laughs> I could have told you that. The skinny jeans weren't working. <laughs> Check you out coming in with your indie self-published game. It's an eco- <laughs> it's an economic game, so both sucks. You think every game's an economic game? <laughs> <laughs> Let's look at this guy's track record, Sean. I played Card City, and I really enjoyed it. I think the offering mechanism was very clever, in which you were trying to offer bribes that either you thought were good enough for the other person to take but not so good that you're losing out or you're trying to manipulate them in what you're offering to do what you want them to do without them knowing it that was cool that was the 2d card laying game to create a city then he made town center with the illusion of the lego blocks and the blocks to build upwards and outwards and power your different types of blocks and you're oh, holy moly that game broke me i could not get my head around that game at all this is another step on it it's even more complicated building in three dimensions and with the different patients and the doctors and the types of rooms and the money and the what are you trying to do to me <laughs> i think he's just added some euro elements to a spatial awareness hipster game i think that in this game you have obviously got this 3d building and the spatial awareness but as i said he's bringing in all these euro elements of moving people around and where time is money and making sure that you have the right staff in place to cure the the patients of the different seriousnesses and obviously there's rooms that improve certain elements there's a room that, that stops you using so much time there's a room that trains your doctors quicker so there's lots of little rooms you can bring in and it, it all feels very euro until you get to that spatial awareness bit and that's when it's almost again i keep talking about two games wrapped into one this again feels like two games wrapped into one for me but i kind of think they work together Ronan. i think that the combination makes it feel like it's going to be a tough and tight game now that can be you know a good thing and a bad thing from experience with his other games in order to learn them to play them well it does take a couple of games to get into what you do and where you're going to see the patterns emerge and i think with king that takes it up another level i think this is a game where half a dozen games in you're still going to be going oh okay so i've learned that putting that room near that room is the wrong thing to do or if i manipulate these cars to make it different buildings it's going to have different effects further down the line I think this is a game that's going to take quite a lot of experience to get the most out of Sean. It is, and there's things that I I just didn't bother talking about, like you specify in a certain type of illness, basically, and that's the, the, the people you're trying to draw in. There's certain rooms that can't sit next to each other. You have to have a an, an office area with a staff member in it, otherwise your facility just doesn't work. There's lots of things to think of. I think one of the things that I looked at and I thought, hmm, I don't know how well that's going to work, is this special tiles, where they're going to give you special bonuses, and it just feels to me like the first player, if they can get the special tiles, which it looks like there's not too hard to get them, they're always just going to pick them up. There's not going to be a choice. You're just going to choose a special tile as your first go, and then maybe the next turn 
you move on to something else because it just feels like those special tiles are just so important to the game. They're so powerful. Yeah, I think the specifications of how powerful tiles are going to be is definitely going to be down to a bit of gameplay. And it seems to me like, to be honest, the players could take all the help they can get because I don't think it's going to be too easy to put together a well-working health facility too early on. I will say, though, he's obviously attempted to, to tie a theme in here to these, but... There's a few thematic wonks in there which are just taking me out. Like the fact that your doctors get worse the more time they spend dealing with patients or the fact that you can put in shortcuts across whole buildings and across areas which spatially make absolutely no sense in the game which is very spatial where you have to follow the logic to place things and then it breaks logic with things like shortcuts or cars preventing rooms being built adjacent to them is... Just a bit weird, like, I'm pretty sure cars can move, isn't that the whole point of a car? The whole package doesn't tie with the theme. The theme doesn't help me learn the rules. It does to a certain aspect of it. There is, you know, It's not completely themeless, but it doesn't really help with the flow of the game. It's like the theme is there to make the game more difficult for me, as opposed to help me play the game. Come around, and he doesn't say what year it's set in. They're obviously going to a transporter room. Come on. I just thought if their cars can't move, it probably wasn't the future. (laughs) I agree. I'm not sure I like the car aspect to it. I just, it just feels it was a quite clunky way of making sure that you just don't have carte blanche to place your clinic exactly where you want to. You've got to think a bit more. But I think the theme myself, and this is unusual for me because I actually like this game. I think the theme myself is it's actually tacked on. It's quite an abstract game, but with this theme just slapped onto it. I kind of like it, which is really weird for me. I think the game is really weird. <laughs> I think there's a whole lot of bits and bobs to the game which just attacked on to make it more difficult, like the cars and some of the spatial aspects and what have you. It seems like, to me, there's an awful lot of overheads within the rules and within the theme for a game which amounts to basically 18 actions. It's six rounds, three actions each round, one of only three actions. You don't have a lot of swing in what you can do, and... There's an awful lot of counting and checking. Can this go there? And if I do that, it prevents me doing this. An awful lot to think about in those 18 actions. It's a pass for me. It's a trap. It's too much investment for too little reward. Offers two designs previously. I much preferred the simpler one. This is another step towards even more complication. And I'm going to have to have a pass on clinic and stay unhealthy. Sean? For me, it looks... Nice. I think it's a nice design. The iconography stands out. And also, I, it's another thing that's drawing me to this game is I'm not the biggest fan of games like Town Center, but I don't have anything like that in my collection, really. So what I really want is is something with that spatial awareness, but something to actually keep my interest. And bringing those Euro mechanisms into this type of game, it really piqued my interest. I love the way that at the end of the round, you don't just harvest points. You have to make a decision on how much of your profit, because you can only put profit into points, you're going to push into points and how much you're going to hold back for the next round. That's a really interesting choice for me. It does have its flaws. There's a few bits that I'm not 100% sure about. If I do get to Essen in time, I'm going to pick this up. It's a treasure for me. And that is Clinic.
So my second game this episode is Waggle Dance. This is from designer Mike Nudd, who designed Vampire Prince of the City. And it's from Grubbling Games, and they brought us Cornish Smuggler Last Essen. This is their second release. This is for two to four players. It plays in three different game modes, but it's up to 90 minutes. In this game, players represent a hive of bees. And a waggle dance, if you don't know, is the dance that bees do to each other to give each other communication, tell each other where there's flowers and what have you. Now, each hive is racing to collect, in the basic game, seven honey tokens. The bees are all represented by dice. Again, it's a, a dice as your worker placement game. And every round, those are rolled and placed on different spots which are laid out on action cards. So it's Kingsburg and Alien Frontiers sort of dice as worker placement rather than the Pantalos, Praetor, gaining experience sort of dice worker placement game. There are seven action cards laid out on the table. Each player starts with their own hive of three spaces. So you're going to use these B dice in different ways. One of the main ones at the main space in the middle of this row of cards is to provide nectar in cubes of six different colours. Now, on the six different colours, after all dice have been placed, whoever's got the majority of dice in each area is going to score two cubes and take them back to their hive and whoever second is going to get one you're trying to bring that nectar back to your hive because having four of the same color on any one of your tiles allows you to flip that tile and it becomes honey filled and like i say in the base game you just need to flip seven of those hive tiles in order to win although there's different length games you can play to five or to nine you start with three of these tiles and there's a spot that allows you to grow more obviously as you need to because you need to get seven to win there are also spots that allow you to claim eggs and then to hatch eggs which are in your hive and that's going to give you more dice to use on a turn you may also trade nectar or eggs for nectar cubes of different colors which you need to complete your set so you don't get too stuck and there's also a chance to claim queen bee cards which are bonus actions or things you can play on other people. They let you change the value of your dice after you roll them. And basically break the rules of the game. So there you go. It's a light worker placement game. Themed on collecting honey into your beehive. Sean Waggle Dance. Right, Ronan. Let us start with that name. Now I know it's what bees do. It's actually a technical term for what bees do when they are mating or making honey or doing something that bees do in bee land. Waggle dance. In that massive list of hundreds and hundreds of games, you have to have some sort of filtering out process. Now, when you come across a game called Waggle Dance, I think 90% of people will go, that sounds like a load of nonsense. Let's move on. It's gonna, it sounds like it's a party game where everyone has to waggle their bum or something in a certain direction or whatever. It's just the worst name. But Ronan, you made me look at this and I curse you because I've added something else to my Essen list to look at. Yeah, I see. You're so shallow, Sean. <laughs> I saw Waggle Dance. I thought, hmm... That's the thing that bees do to attract each other to hives. I bet this is about getting honey into a beehive. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it and you can kind of see the bees on the board box and it's bright and colourful. And I guess I'd seen too many glum men with beards pointing at plans as the story goes. Or ancient monuments with a jet plane flying over the top. Or miserable looking European nobles. Or... The city of Corinth full of time. Whatever I'd seen a million times, this one caught my eye and said, look, something different. So there's no way I'm criticising them for going in a different direction, taking an interesting name and a different theme. Mm -mm, no way. 
Great name. I love it. Wuggle. Now, <laughs> as well as the theme, they have got themselves some lovely components. It's bright. Everything is clear to use. Everything makes sense. And we have given rulebooks an absolute kicking in these three episodes. This is how to do a rulebook. It's colourful. It's got gameplay examples. It's structured correctly. And it does all the rules in four pages. Grubbling Games, whoever else was involved in it, congratulations on that rulebook. I agree. Congratulations. It brings me on to the word that really, I think, almost sums up this game is accessible. It is just that rulebook is accessible. The gameplay is accessible. The design is accessible. It all follows the theme really well. And now I know they've had a bit of a design overhaul from where it originally was, where there wasn't actually any bees on it at all. And they've brought this very colourful, loads of bees floating around design to it. And are only going to make this game better. But everything about it is accessible, Ronan. It's fantastic. What you'd say if you're going to criticise it is there's nothing majorly innovative in here. It's got that lovely work placement mechanism that we've seen before with the rolling the dice. It works exactly the same as it works in a couple of other games that have used it well in that there's blocking with those dice. You can kind of see what everyone else has rolled and try and stop them from getting what you think they might need. I think the interaction with the cards is a good idea. They don't seem too powerful, but they bring a little bit in. They work at different times of the day as well. I think the area majority idea on the Nectar is possibly sort of the, the most different thing. And the most interesting thing really in it in that you could claim two cubes with one of your dice, or you could put four down and get none, depending upon what the other players do, what everyone else has rolled. And that fact that you're looking and predicting what other people are doing is an interesting way of, of using dice in a game in, like I say, a really accessible game and using it well. Another thing I think they've done really well is this was a Kickstarter game, and the changes they've made based on their customer feedback has been fantastic. They adjusted the length because it was too long for a pretty light game. They changed the name from Pollen to Nectar, which might seem a simple thing, but they listened. They listened about the rule book and ended up with customer feedback with a really good rule book. Now, why more companies don't release their rule books to people and say, what do you think? Have you got any thoughts? Can we structure it better? Because this is a case of you know, crowdfunding and crowdthink done well. It really is, and more power than for it. Now, you mentioned that they use the dice in some sort of, not unique, but quite innovative ways. It's very rare to find a dice game that doesn't actually rely almost solely on luck. Yeah, you're going to roll the dice, and sometimes you need a number to come up for you. But there's so many ways to use those dice, and there's so many things that you can get done. If you can't do this that round, then you can go and concentrate on something else, and you'll always come back to that. And there's lots of little things to do. They're simple choices, but there's lots of variety of them, Ronan. Yeah, I don't feel like you're ever going to get frustrated, which is, I guess, another part of the accessibility. Worst comes to worst, you can chuck them on some nectar cards and hope to get something from there. You've got your Queen Bee cards after a couple of rounds, which are going to help you change your dice up and down. So I think it will reward good play, and it's not going to feel frustrating as you play it. I think really my only other concern is, and I think they adjusted this by moving it down, is the weight-to-length ratio. I don't think it's that deep a game. I think 90 minutes is too long, but easily adjusted. I think the seven-tile variant is going to be below 90 minutes. I can't see this going much more than an hour. The advertised 90 minutes time, you know... 
in an SNL list where people are just looking at the base things, like you said, the name Waggle Dance, I think the time might be an issue. I think people might look at this and go, 90 minutes for a light dice rolling worker placement game about bees. I'm not up for it. I think maybe the tiny little misstep there and little things, you know, might restrict your audience. When I think this really does deserve a wide audience, and I think we've both been pretty positive on this one, Sean. Uh, summaries are not going to be that surprising. Go on, give it to us. <laughs> no, probably not. No. As I said at the right at the top, I curse you for making me add this to my list. I'm definitely going to check it out in this and have a look at it, have a play. And it could come home with me. I haven't quite decided on that yet, but it's a definite treasure in that it's very accessible. There's lots of routes to take. It looks beautiful and you can learn it very quickly with a very well laid out rule book. Yep. They've done everything fantastically well. Nothing massively innovative apart from the theme, which I like. They've done a really good job. It's suited for casual and younger players to play in that shorter version of the game. And for me, it's definitely, for what they've done and what they've tried to do, Waggle Dance is definitely a thumbs-up treasure. So, my third game and the fifth game of this episode is Castle Crush. This comes from Soso Studio and designed by Sai Hong Chang. Plays one to four players in a time frame of about 15 minutes. So, this is an incredibly light game. It is a 3D building dexterity game. You have a central platform with players' platforms placed around it at a certain distance now the game comes with a little hammer and you are going to measure the distance by using the hammer so from the center of the middle board to the center of your board is where the hammer is going to lie the game consists of three rounds now this is the standard game there's a couple of other game styles or types in it but we're going to concentrate on the standard game you've got three rounds you're going to first off build your castle Initially, you're going to have five blocks and you're going to place those five blocks in whatever way you want to do, as long as they're the right way up. And you're also going to place your king and your general. These are little wooden cylinders that are going to basically sit on your castle and the whole point is your castle is protecting them and trying to be as sturdy as possible. The castle pieces score by multiplying the windows and doors on the blocks by the amount of blocks that they are on. So next up, players are now going to take turns by putting that hammer or gavel or whatever you want to call it on the central platform. And without pushing it, you're going to let it fall onto somebody else's castle. You earn points for every castle piece and the king and general that you knock completely off the platform. Lastly, players calculate their scoring with points for any king or general still on the platform. All the pieces knocked off go into a general supply and starting with the player in last place, players are going to choose three blocks to add to their platform if they are able to do so. In the second round, roof blocks are going to come into play. Now these have three windows, so they're quite high scoring. That's it. There's not much more. You are going to build a castle. You're going to put your king and your general in and everybody else is going to try and knock it down. That's the game. Ronan. Sean, who doesn't enjoy building things with wooden blocks? Only a very, very wrong person, Ronan. Just just a wrong person, right? Just a wrong, misguided individual. I often have to drag you away from building things with wooden <laughs> blocks for a game at the table. You know I've been banned from the Lego shop in four different cities. <laughs> it's what you did with the blocks. <laughs> Obviously, you're going to be looking to play this with the family. 
my daughters, both of them, love at the beginning of Cube Quest when you get to set up your blocks and try and defend your king from attacking your castle. This takes it to a completely different level. And with the competitive element, attempting to score points with that little, you know, the window score more, the higher up they are, taking risks and whatever you, they are going to love it. And I am going to get screamed at when this game is played. What about the girls? That's just me. <laughs> You'll go back in your box if you don't play. <laughs> it's what you do as a kid. We used to play games where we used to build forts from our Lego pieces and hide our little soldiers in the forts. And then we'd take turns at throwing something, trying to break the fort. And whoever's army pieces stayed up, who was the winner? It's almost exactly that game with a few rules thrown in. Fantastic. You can't go wrong, surely. You can't. We're ready to summarise. <laughs> Great idea. Fun game. It's at a nice price point. Great choice, Sean. It's a treasure. Go. <laughs> it is a pleasing game of building and destroying. It has simple but effective rules. This, there probably are some people, Lloyd, out there that will try and find an optimum way of building. <laughs> <laughs> but anyone who really does study it too hard and finds the optimum build it really isn't is missing the whole point of the game there is a heavy emphasis on fun and i think the scores are going to be largely unimportant but there's going to be a few battles between myself and Rona. i'm sure it's a treasure all the way pre-ordered can't wait to get hold of it i think it's going to be the fun hit of essen and that is castle crush Right, Sean, if you can do a quick game, I can do a quick game. And my next game is Malay. This is designed by Ricky Tata, who has done the Coup games. And it is being released by La Mame Games. Again, also Ricky's company who released Coup. It is for two to four players and it plays in 20 minutes. It has got the theme of the king is dead, long live the new king, which is going to be one of the players. It is a bluffing game of building units earning gold and attacking each other's castles the first person to conquer a castle is going to be the immediate victor or after four rounds whoever has the most golden land will win this is played on a small map with areas and areas contain castles and there's also always a mountainous middle in that map Everyone starts with one soldier in a castle and with 15 gold. And you can then spend from your 15 gold to build as many soldiers, knights, catapults and camps as you wish to. Now, those are all going to have different game effects. And as we go through the game, they'll let you know what they do. Each game in Malay, you play through four seasons. Firstly, in each season, you bid for start player. This is a closed fist bid with your gold, and only the winner is going to pay. The winner of that bid then chooses who go first, not necessarily go first themselves. You then all simultaneously play face down one of three action cards. These attacks build or move and attack. The start player resolves their action, and so does each other player in turn. Now, when you tax, you just simply take three gold. When you build, you build units in castles or any other area in which you are present. So again, you can build soldiers, knights, catapults or camps. If you move an attack, you can move your soldiers one space to an adjacent area and then they attack. And we'll talk about how attacking works in a second. Or any knights you have. Now, those are three times more expensive than soldiers, but they can move any number of spaces and then attack. Catapults can also attack, but they attack at a range of one, so into one adjacent area, but they can't actually move themselves. To attack, you simply put an amount of gold of your choosing inside your hand and hide the rest of your gold. The defender then has to guess 
how much gold is in your hand? And this is where the guessing and bluffing comes in, which is the designer of coup, I guess you're going to expect some guessing and bluffing going on. If the defender correctly guesses the amount, then the attacker still has to pay and they lose their attacking unit. If the defender guesses incorrectly, then the attacker continues attacking until all the defenders are dead and then they capture all the camps that are left in that area. In fact, you can only have one of each type of piece in any area. So if there's a camp, you steal it. So if there are multiple defenders, then the attacker has to carry on going, putting in gold, spending it, and the defender gets to guess each time until they get it right or they run out of pieces. Now, the catapult is slightly different in that it's a one attack to destroy all defenders. However, if an attacker moves into an area of the catapult, the catapult cannot defend itself. It's simply conquered. When a defender is in a castle, they get to make two simultaneous guesses at once, and the castle defends itself, so you don't actually have to have a unit in there for it to be a defender. Then, at the end of each season, you're going to collect gold in income, and camps and bonus areas are going to give you boost to how much gold you're going to get. Then we move on to the next season. Each season exactly the same, apart from winter, in which you get to take two actions each. That is the entire game, apart from if you play the advanced game, while you're doing the building of units with the original 15 gold, you may bid for special powers at the same time, and the special powers will help you in certain ways. It's a very simple game. All the depth is going to come from the player interaction. The pieces are very minimalistic. It's very abstract. It's all about giving the players a framework in which to interact. Sean Malay. Right, so it, it looks okay. Meh, let's move on from that. There's one aspect of this game, Ronan, that is absolutely crucial to it. You can build up your castles and your troops as much as you want. You can get this basic economy going. You can collect your gold, do what you want. There's one thing that stands out above all others. It's where all the interaction is going to come from, and that is the battle. Ronan, we've talked about it. And I put it to you, that battle mechanism is pure nonsense. <laughs> wow. Am I wrong? Well, <laughs> I am absolutely awful at coup. Absolutely terrible at it. I am the world's worst coup player, okay? I cannot get it. I've got no idea if someone's claiming a role that they haven't got. I have played the game over 20 times and I still will consistently be one of the first one or two people out of the game. I don't feel like I have anything to go on as to whether a person is telling the truth or not. And then I must be a horrible person because I'm one of the first people to always get killed. So when you get into the game and you have some sort of impression of what roles are out, what roles aren't out, playing the odds, I'm never there to play that bit. But if I do by some fluke last that long, I, I still have no idea. I'm terrible at it. The key to me for Malay is... Is there going to be enough information for me to make an educated guess or an educated opinion on what the attacker has in their hand? Are they doing, you know, more than one attack in a round? How important is attack to them? Are they faking me here to go elsewhere and make the attack? Is it going to work? I think until I play it, I cannot give a definitive answer. But... I think there's a bit more to go on in the game. I think there's a bit more framework for the bluffing. And I hope that that lets me enjoy 
the game in gold that obviously Ricky struck with Coup because it's been hugely successful. And I know any number of people who love the game, I just didn't get it. Sean, Malay gives you a bit more to go on. It's not complete nonsense. All right, so if somebody has a small amount of gold in their hand, you kind of know roughly what they can and can't do. They're probably not going to spend all their gold to attack you, but and it just comes down to a complete guest fest, surely. In coup, I'm with you in terms of I just don't feel like there's enough to go on other than if you know the person, what they're likely to do, can you read that person? If you're playing with complete strangers, as I did at the Luncon 3, we had a couple of games of coup with complete strangers who came along because it was a quick game to play, and none of us could tell what the others were doing at all because we didn't know each other. We didn't know what we were likely to do. There's very little to go on, in my opinion. And this game feels... It's just more of that, and but even more so. I just don't think that... If somebody's got 15 gold coins in their possession, how would you ever know for sure how many gold coins are in their hand or even have a really educated guess you won't it's impossible i just don't see how that mechanism works and is fair or adds anything to the game and that's really what the whole game is based on is that player interaction and that combat so i have to judge it on the way i see it and that's the way i see it you've played tammany hall right i have how do you work out how many political chips someone's going to put in to a vote in that system when they may have any number of political chips? In Tammany Hall, you have a lot more information to go on. You know how much it's worth to that person. You know how desperate they are to get into that certain position. You can see what their strategy is, what their tactics are. You know rough what direction they're going in. In this one, it could be just that you're just neighbours and one of you decides to attack the other. Who knows how much that's worth to you? But you only have five actions. So there's really not enough time in the game to just sort of do willy-nilly attacks. You kind of have to focus a bit on what you're trying to do. I don't know. I haven't played it. I am playing devil's advocate here. But the reason why I think I have got more control is that whole Tammany Hall thing of, well, you've got a finite amount of resources. Do I think you're going to spend it all? Because if you do and then we attack you back or if you do and you lose the attack and you start losing your pieces you haven't got any money to you know to, to build up your forces again and you'll be vulnerable for us to move in and start attacking you and then where else have you started fights and therefore are you likely to want to win that one more than this one and have I made it a juicy target to lull you in I think that it sounds, in theory, like you wouldn't have a clue. But when you start explaining political voting in Tammany Hall to people, they go, well, I don't know how many you're going to put in. But you do work it out. You do kind of go, oh, hold on. And then you do start reading the board. And you do go, well, they've got two more fights. And there's only a certain number of, let's say, Irish in here. And they're after the Irish. And they probably want that one more than this. And it becomes fun. I'm hoping that that's the thing you're going to get from Malay, the ability to read the board and go, okay, they kind of want this, but I think they want that one more. So they're not going to risk all their money on this, but they might, you know. And going from there and trying to work it out. And it's only a 20-minute game. You know, I, all I need to do is give me a bit more of a direction, a bit more information than Coup. And I believe it is doing that. I think I've made myself clear on this. This game is incredibly light. There's not a lot to it, but 
if there is meat on its bones, it is in that combat and uh, that battle system. If I have no faith in that battle system, then I just can't justify giving this a treasure. I hope I'm wrong, because it's such a quick game. If it does pack that punch where you can read what each other is doing, and there's more to it than I seem, then brilliant. But at the moment, it's a 100% a trap. I just can't see that it's going to be any fun or have any tactical nails to it at all. I am going to go Malay is a treasure. It is possibly a lot of hope going into this because I feel like I missed out on something with Koo. I wish I did love it. I think that the thing that's going on the map is going to be interesting enough. There's going to be some balance in what you know. You're going to have to balance in what you build and the chances you take. You're going to have to leave yourself in position to leap on any openings that occur. And I hope, I feel like I've got enough control in the game for this to be a treasure. And that's Malay. My penultimate game of the episode is Cult Express, coming from Ludenorte and designed by Christoph Rembault. Christoph did a game called Hacker and a game called Sandwich that I've never heard of. And this game plays two to six players in a time frame of roughly 30 minutes. This game is set in the Wild West, where players are bandits seeking to earn the most money from raiding a train without getting shot too many times. The game has a 3D train employed as the game board, and players will use cards to program their bandits who have differing special abilities to start with. So everyone's going to choose one of these bandits' characters and place them at the rear of the train. And there is a marshal meeple who's going to go at the front of the train and this marshal is a non-player character who's going to try and stop the players getting hold of the loot first off a round court card is drawn and this is going to dictate how many turns will take place in the round and whether the cards will be played face up or face down and this round card also offers some events that happen at the end of the round players start off by drawing six cards phase one is scheming this is where players play one of the following two actions. You can choose to play one card in player order and lay that card on the table. And then the other players will lay their card on top of it, still in player order. Your second option is to choose not to play a card and take three additional cards into your hand. Phase two is a stealing. And this is where the cards are resolved one by one in the original player order and the actions depicted on the cards are carried out on the train. So what are these actions? Players can move along the train. It depends if you're on the top or the bottom of the train, how far you can move along. They can fire their guns at each other. Firing the gun, if you hit the person, is basically you're going to give them a bullet card that is going to clog up their deck because opposition bullet cards are completely useless to the other players. You can change level. This means you can move from inside the carriages up onto the roof of the train and vice versa. Players can move that martial meeple in the hope that he's going to take on and shoot one of their opponents for them. You can perform a robbery. This is where you pick up some of the loot that's left in the train. And lastly, you can punch an opponent. And this is going to cause them to drop some of the loot that they've already gathered. After the round ends, the players take all their cards back into their hand, including the useless bullet cards I mentioned earlier. And the start player will change. 
The game is going to last for five rounds with the person collecting the most loot declared the richest man in the West or something or other. That's Cult Express, Ronan. What are those components all about? What are they about? <laughs> well, it certainly catches the eye. And I think that's why <laughs> it's it's in our show, because I don't know that I'd ever sort of pick a game called Cult Express about the Wild West out of from the crowd at all. But that 3D train, it looks both amazing and way over the top in equal amounts. Aren't you going to go amazing? It just looks brilliant. It's just like, whoa. If you're going to bring a game to life, you know, that's certainly one way to do it. it. Do you feel like you're on a train robbing people? Well, you do when you're actually on a train robbing people. So components, well, they've got that right. The second thing is that programming aspect with the scheming phase, with playing the action cards, and you're putting them all down, and everyone can see what's being programmed. So you have to react to what everyone else is doing. That seems to me like it's going to create a genuine standoff tension, and you know, a bit of cat and mouse, and the ability to see that someone's moving. Then you move the marshal, attempt to second guess them, which way the bandits going to go. They're going to go up to the roof and along. And ah, oh, I just think it's a great idea. And it really fits the theme, the fact that you're watching each other, you're seeing what each other are doing, and you have to react to what each other are doing. I, I think that's a great idea. Definitely that side, but also there is the cards that change it up and make you lay the cards face down. So you might think that you're about to see what the other people are doing, but all of a sudden that round card comes out and there's a tunnel space on it, and all of a sudden, oh no, I'm not going to be able to react to him in this turn. I'll have to wait till next turn. I'll do and and it, then it adds an element of luck, definitely, but the element of mystery as well. What have the other players taken? We talked about Libertalia adding that sort of having that. Th- theater of, of the cards turning round so what's he played what's the what, what she played yeah i really like the, the way they switch it up that, in that way ronan we talked about the waggle dance rule book being clear effective and well laid out again this is another example of a really easy rule book to read decipher and get that game played as quickly as possible it's really really well done this is incredibly well done. You just read through it and go, wow, I know exactly how to play. You'd barely have to refer back to that rule book ever again. Fantastic. Great job, Ludonort. They've done it really, really. I'm impressed 100% by it. I'm impressed the way they've brought the theme through and the mechanisms. Clearly, I'm impressed with what they've done with the components. It is a quick fun game you know half an hour lots of interacting lots of second guessing each other all these different touches help set the scene there's plenty of wild west games out there and i'm going to look at the bang games i don't feel like i'm in the wild west when i'm playing the bang games i just don't i don't think they're particularly fun this makes me feel like i'm in the wild west this makes me think wow and you're a bunch of rooting tooting no good is and i can't trust you as far as i could throw you Right, so we've been pretty positive about this. Now, I want to throw in, well, maybe not a negative. I just want to get your take on it, really, Ronan. The train offers, obviously, a certain amount of carriages per player, and the train's going to be of differing lengths. But is there going to be enough actual action spaces on this train? Or is it just all going to become a bit congested and people getting in the way of each other? So if you're planning to shoot him, I know that's part of the game, it's kind of Keystone Cops, like, but you're planning to shoot this person or you're planning to get the sheriff in, but another two people are in your way and you shoot somebody else. Is the size of the game area going to impact on any small amounts of strategy or tactics involved in the game? 
I think you're using that big word strategy again. Yeah, okay. All right, tactics. Tactics. (laughs) I think there's going to be mayhem in the game, but it's it's kind of meant to be. And also, it's set up so that mayhem is mostly on the lower level. You have to go down into the train in order to get any money. You cannot make money on the roof. But when you get to the roof, you've got a bit more freedom and you can predict a bit more what's going on. So you can move quicker. It will be less clogged up. The marshal won't get in your way. Again, I just feel like it's a nod to the theme that you have to dive into the mayhem a little bit and grab one of the purses that's been dropped on the floor. And when you get home afterwards, you look through it. Maybe you got, you know, $250, maybe you got $500. And the differences in the loot I like as well, that they're not huge differences. They're only within 50% of each other. I like that. You don't want to be playing a game with luck base where someone grabbed the 10,000 by luck and therefore they win when someone else grabbed four 1,000 ones. I don't particularly enjoy those ones. I think in this level of a game, this lightness, this fun, it's not completely random. It's not where I've got no control. I've got some control and yet there's a little bit of chaos. I like it. The only issue I've really got with this game is i had to ask myself ronan do i want this game just because it's a 3d train or do i think it actually might be a good game i think i know the answer but do you want to sum up first for us well if i haven't been positive enough i thought you did just choose this because it's a 3d train and i was kind of dreading looking at it i was like oh it's just gonna be a gimmick that programming, what's on the action cars, the fact that shooting each other just slows each other down. You get those bullets in your deck, but easily got past. You just spend around drawing more. The thematic feel to it all, like you're all horrible and you're stitching each other up. I think this sounds really, really great. And I really hope you do pick it up, Sean. This Colt Express for me is definitely a treasure. As I said, I had to ask myself that question. Again, on top of the actual 3D train was it the fact that this rule book was so well laid out? Ludonote last year, they came out with Lewis and Clark. Really great game. And I've got to say, I can't find much to fault with this game. I thought I was going to. I thought it was going to be all style over substance. But I've been, so far, pleasantly proved wrong. I'm going to play test this in Essen. And I would suggest I'll probably pick it up. It's a definite treasure. And that is Colt Express. So we're into the last three games we're going to be covering in this year's SM previews. And this one is Neptune. This is from designer Dirk Hen, who's done Shogun, Alhambra, Rosenkonig. It is from Queen Games. And if you've listened to it in our episodes, you've probably heard us talk about Queen Games, both positively and negatively. Again, they did Shogun, Lancaster, Fresco, Escape Cursor Temple, many, many other games. This is for three to five players, takes 45 minutes, and for the second time, just in this episode, I have chosen a trading in the Mediterranean theme for a game. Now, the game board shows five city-states around the Mediterranean, and a temple in each of these city-states, and each player has a marker on each temple. And each player is represented by a ship, and they are going to be travelling around between these city-states into the different ports within them and they're going to be delivering goods to fill contracts to score points and earn gold there are different types of cards in the game and players are going to be drafting them so the first type of cards show the ports in each state and they also show the points you can get for delivering each of the five different goods in the game to that port on your round now there are cards showing one of the five different types of goods which you can deliver and there are also or cards. Now, or cards determine how far you can be able to move your ship on each round. Each turn, your ship is going to start in Crete. And the first thing you do before your ship moves is we're going to do five rounds of card drafting to set your hand for the round. 
Now, in that first phase, the three rows of cards are laid out face down. The first row shows contracts. Now, they show the ports on the map, and they show how much you're going to score for delivering goods to each of those ports. The second row is going to show the goods which you need to deliver, and as discussed, the third row is the ore cards for your movement. Each of those columns clearly forms a set of three cards. The start player, which is random for the very first round, and after that is determined by how you play your ore cards, they flip the leftmost column of three cards, and they must decide whether to take that column of cards or move on. Once they move on, they cannot choose to go backwards, and they must continue flipping until they find one which they wish to choose. Once they've chosen, the next player chooses to either take a face-up column of cards or they can flip the next face-down one until all cards are flipped over or all players have chosen. There's always one spare column of cards each turn. Now, whoever's taken the lowest or card is going to get to go first next time and so on until we do this five times and each player have five sets of cards. Upon acquiring these sets of cards, the players must place them into one of five slots on their board. And this is very important. You have these five slots and you're going to program in which contracts and what order the contracts are in because you have to fulfill those contracts in order when we get to the second phase. Now in the second phase, each player is going to play one of their ore cards, and that's going to show the current speed they're able to travel in this round, but it's going to be added to the current wind strength, and that starts at 5, and we'll discuss what happens with wind strength in a second. At the beginning of the game, there are links between each of the ports, and you put out random distance markers, which tell you how much speed you need and how far you can be able to travel with your ore and wind speed each turn. Each of these ore cards shows an adjustment to the wind strength you see, and when all the cards are played, you're going to know what the adjustment is from the current rate for the next round, so everyone knows what the speed is going to be next round as they're planning their moves. If you reach a destination city and you have a contract for that city, you may fulfill the contract by handing in one of your goods cards and claiming either the temple points in the city-state controlling the port, or you may take gold. Now, gold is important because you can spend gold at a rate of one gold per extra move you wish to make each turn. If you fulfill a contract which is not your leftmost contract, then you must flip all unfulfilled contracts to the left of the contract you just fulfilled, which shows you you just get one chance. If you cannot do the ones on the left, you're going to be wasted and you can't score those points. Now, in each round, you get five chances to fulfill the contracts. However, each player gets two special cards which allows them to play an extra round and over the course of the three turns you may play those at any time once the five normal rounds have finished. So you may double up in one of the rounds or you may take one extra turn in two of the three rounds. At the end of each five phases of movement each temple is going to reward the player with the most points there. So if you go to numerous ports in one city-state, you've got the option to build up lots of points within that temple. And if you have the most points in the temple, you're going to score some points. And at the end of the second set of movements, the first and second place are going to score in each temple. And the third set of movements, first, second and third, are going to score right at the end of the game. There's also bonus points at the end of each of those rounds for the player who has the most money. Sean, it's a queen game, so we know it's got lovely components, it's got a great rule book, and we had the obligatory terrifying explanation video. What are your thoughts on Neptune? Ronan, don't breeze past the terrifying scary lady. 
You can't breeze past that. That's not a thing you can recover from. Oh, dear. I did it again. I listened. I think there's something masochistic about it at this point. I just have to listen to her at this point. I can't help myself. And, and then... then you choose your horse speed. <laughs> Terrifying. That's me not sleeping for at least three nights, Ronan. Well done, and thank you for that. <laughs> thank Queen Games. <laughs> right, so moving on. I started looking at this game, and... The game that came to mind was an SM release from last year, which is Packet Row. As I as I went on, the main difference between Packet Row and this one for me was those quite interesting Packet Row. It just seems to get more and more boring as you go into it. You start off with that choice of choosing your contract, your good and your odd cards. Do you choose the first one? Do you uh, risk it and go on for the next one? Do you wait? Or do you just take something that you know you can possibly deliver? It's got a nice cards. There's a little bit of fun in that. But then it just becomes a, quite a simple pick up and deliver. I know there's there's hidden aspects and there's planning in terms of how do you get to your locations and making sure that you you can fulfil these contracts. But it doesn't seem terribly interesting to me. There doesn't seem to be a lot going on other than that pick up and deliver. I know the scoring at the end, Ronan. Well, actually, let's let's leave it at that. The pick up and deliver aspect. Huh? I mean, is that interesting to you? Firstly, if you're going to compare it to a game from last year, surely Nordwind. Definitely. I, I meant just that first bit where you're choosing a contract and you're choosing where it's going to go. That kind of got me started off thinking about Packet Row. But you're absolutely right. Nordwind as well definitely has very similar feel with those three ports as well. So, yeah, I can see that. I think that on your other point you made, you're kind of focusing on the second part of each round in that... You're just doodling around your ship and you're going to go somewhere and you're going to attempt to score the most points. And that does seem to be sort of the most obvious part of it. And that's not where the fun is for me. I love card drafting games. And this one, I think, does it with more purpose than most. This is a card draft. You're choosing if you want those cards or not. Move on to the next ones. Do you want to draft those or not? Move on to the next ones. And that's where you're having to get the right combinations. And I love the spatial aspect of it. What you're doing in that second phase of just pooling around, playing your all cards, seeing how far you can go, that is not where the game is played. The game is played in when you draft and you choose which of your slots to put these in. It might sound maybe a bit obvious, but you don't know exactly what you're going to get. And then the drafts are going to become more difficult as you move on through the rounds and you realise, wow, you know, I've got a gap here. I'm all the way over in the eastern Mediterranean most of the time, and suddenly there's only western Mediterranean destinations coming out, and this is not going to fit in space two on my board. What am I going to do? And I really like that. I think that it is a quick game. It's only 45 minutes, so let's not look for too much from it. And that drafting with a purpose really appeals to me. I do think that that is probably the most fun and interesting part of the game, but that whole choice... I know you do it five times per round and you're choosing five contracts and you have to choose them, but I don't see that that's going to take up a lot of the time. I think most of the time is going to be calculating how far your ship can travel and getting your goods there and then choosing whether to convert into gold or points. And I don't like that scoring system at the end where it introduces a second and third in the second and third rounds. I think you're right in what you say, but I don't think there's enough in that card drafting element to make it interesting to me. I think this is definitely an issue where, as we've said before, the proof is going to be the eating of the pudding. We're taking two different reads 
on the same set of rules here, not having seen an actual gameplay example or any reviews or any words from anyone who's played it, it's difficult to actually know how the game's going to play. I'm focusing mostly on the card drafts and thinking that's where you're programming your system and that's where you're going to be doing most of your play and then the rest of it is almost going to be seeing it out, almost sort of second half of Galaxy Trucker sort of a thing. And, and you're focusing more on actually how you use the cards you've got in hand in the second half of each round. So this is interesting because we've read the same rule set. We've seen the same horrific video uh, and we've come at it from two different angles. I agree. I think actually the scoring does seem a bit weird. And if I've got a reservation about it, it is definitely in that scoring. It seems like everything's going to be too close to each other and possibly that early round scoring is going to be too important. You know, if you get a certain lead. And then the other part of it is that if you can see that there's a temple that's wide open for scoring opportunities, are you then going to draft according to that? Are you going to sort of prioritise certain areas? If there haven't been many come up for one side of the board and suddenly it comes up, people are going to suddenly want to draft that. And it's hard for us to say how the game's going to tie together. You're focused on one area. I'm focused on another. I think it's going to be interesting to play it out and see where we go. Well, yeah, definitely, Ronan. I am not completely opposed to playing this game. Um, I know we do tend to give Queen a little bit of a bash in, but I do want to play this Three game. Three Queenies planned already for this game, by the way. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you don't get a laugh out of you. <laughs> God, yeah. All right. <laughs> we give Queen a bash in, and I think Ronan's just shown you one of the reasons we do give them a bashing. But I am interested in playing this game. I am interested in seeing how it plays out. From afar, it just looks to me like it's going to be quite boring. And once you do get through that card drafting phase of the game, I don't think there's a lot more to play. And I'm not sure, as I said, that that card drafting aspect alone is interesting enough to drive the rest of the game for me and to make the rest of the game a fun, enjoyable experience. So for me, it's it's a trap. Okay, so I am really interested in the card drafting. If it was in a longer game, I don't think it'd be enough to, to sustain it. I don't think there's enough of a framework there. In a 45-minute game, and if it really takes 45 minutes, if it does, I think it is going to be really interesting because it's just going along with the equivalent of other quick card drafting games, the likes of, I don't know, Sushi Go or the horrific Hollywood or things like that. that play right, in that time right. frame. That, you, you heard me. <laughs> that play in that time frame... But really offer nothing. I think there's enough here to make the card drafting interesting. There's different ways to go about it. There's risk taking. There's programming your moves. To support a game in less than an hour, I think there's enough here. And I think Neptune is a treasure. Right, my final game of this episode and of our SM previews. It is Hoyuk. It's from a mage company designed by Pierre Canuel and plays two to five players in a time frame of about 60 minutes. This game is set in the Middle East and players are trying to build a Neolithic settlement using mechanisms like tile placement and action point allowance. The game has actually been in existence since 2006 and has been available from the designer as a print and play. Mage Company have taken up the reins for this and released it through Kickstarter. And the product we now see has actually been tweaked over the years. So it's basically it's gone from two to four players to two to five and it's changed a few small rules here and there. We're going to talk about the basic game. There's also a medium and an advanced game available, but we're going to concentrate on the basic game because that tells you the, the main elements to it. Each player 
is going to represent a family trying to dominate the settlement and the player is going to receive 25 tiles depicting houses in their family's colour. The game plays out in a series of rounds divided into the following phases. Building. Each player is given two building cards randomly drawn that show three things that they can build by placing them on the board. The options range from houses to pens to shrines to ovens, uh, with the latter two needing to be placed onto the houses. With specific rules for laying tiles, like for instance, the houses must be played directly beside each other orthogonally or on their own forming a new block. The building takes place twice, so play your first building card in player order, then the second building card in player order, and each of the buildings forms blocks of everybody's houses. And within those blocks are families, which are each of the player's blocks within the greater block. The next phase is the catastrophe phase. There are 24 catastrophe cards, which are randomly drawn and can affect absolutely everything from the player with the largest family to the player with the smallest family, the player with the most shrines and the players with least shrines and so on. We move on to aspect cards. These are awarded to the players with the most per block of the following items. It's the pens, the shrines and the ovens. If a player is the only occupant in a block, they will not get any aspect cards. So this is going to encourage or almost demand that players group together in bigger blocks. Then you go on to the end of the round where you're going to replenish cards and do the upkeep side of things. I talked about aspect cards. What do they do? So you're going to actually spend these aspect cards. This is how you earn your points and drive in a certain building direction. So players may spend as many aspect cards per phase as they have separate families on the board. So that's separate sections of their own color buildings. The aspect cards can be spent in two separate ways. You can build an element on the top left-hand side of the card or one of the elements that we talked about earlier, and you can just use the card to build them. So if you have four families and you have four pen element cards, you can build four pens if you have the space to do so. You can also spend your aspect cards to gain victory points. You earn them by trading in sets. So again, if you have a four aspect cards with four shrines, then you can go down to the four section on the card and that's going to score you eight victory points. The game ends when a player has all 25 houses on the board and then the points are totaled. They've already suggested that you can possibly bring the game length down by house ruling it to 15 or 20 houses. But there is a definite end to this game. And that's roughly how you play Hoya Cronin. Sean? Mm. What kind of Egypts do they play test this game with? <laughs> what level of human being did they encounter for them to write the rule book like that? Oh, I knew you were going to come onto the rule book. <sighs> Firstly, I don't want to go on too much because they have covered everything in there. All right. So this is way, way better than some of the nonsense we've seen. It's just very curious, Sean. <laughs> Explain how it's curious. I, well, first off, Ronan, they seem to have had a decision in there where they've decided if you can explain something in 25 words then that is the wrong way to go because a thousand words are always better they tell you the same thing over and over and over and over again and they put 95 diagrams for each rule can you build a house on top of another player's house 
tells us the answer to that question many, many times, Renan. Many times. <laughs> many, many times. I found myself talking to random people. You can't build your house on top of another person's house, by the way, mate. Also, <laughs> also that diagram that shows us, despite the fact that this, the game board is divided into squares, that diagram that shows somebody slightly off kilter with their houses. You can't do that. You can't do that. <laughs> no. No, I mean, look... I don't quite get why it goes over the rules again and again and again. They'd be much better spending their time choosing a better font. Stop changing between bolded and not bolded and stop changing the size of the font all the time and just concentrating on getting clear, concise rules. But not the worst rule book by a long way. It's all in there several times. (laughs) Kind of getting a bit jokey with it because there's some weird things in this game. There's just some strange touches that make me go, well, that's a bit weird. The catastrophes. Now, I know you couldn't keep the sarcasm out of your voice during the rules explanation. Every catastrophe has got two sets. One which affects you have the most of something, and exactly the same effect happens on a different one if you have the least of something. So should I be building most shrines or least shrines, Sean? Or just sticking in the middle? Or ovens? Or pens? Or should I have the smallest family or the largest family? What should I do? (laughs) Never, ever play with two players is what you should do. because you're both screwed. (laughs) Play three players and be dead in the middle and then they can't touch you. Absolutely. Or five players and just sit in the middle. Two of you who know what you're doing, stay in the middle. Nothing's going to happen. It could be quite funny. Wait for it. It's a volcano. Is it most or least? Most or least? It's most. Yay! Not only that, but the effects of the catastrophes are a bit weird. The volcanoes only blow up animal pens. That's it. That's all they touch. Or the wolves dismantle ovens. (laughs) Come on! Ronan, have you not heard about the Madagascan oven dismantling wolves? (laughs) Not again! Again. I thought we dealt with that plague upon humanity. And it's just the complete random... You can't plan for these. There you go. (laughs) You've done really well there. You've been smashed. You're really well far behind there. You're going to get smashed. <laughs> You're going to get smashed. <laughs> the insult was added to injury there. See those shrines that score you points? Yeah. See, you've got least of them. Yeah. Yeah, everything blows up. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's a bit mean. But, like, also, the construction that you can do is limited by the construction cards you just draw. So... If I just draw a load of construction cards, I know you can change it to aspect cards, but it seems like generally you'll be turning them in for points if you can. But if I just draw a load of construction things that have got shrines on, I'm going to have loads of shrines. So maybe I'll get blown up or there'll be a wind or something that'll blow them over. I don't know. <laughs> All right, moving okay, on. The moving aspect on. cards, I did mention them, right? Here's another little, little groovy, funky thing in this game. The big old picture on that aspect card, Sean. Yeah, the main picture that takes up the majority of that card. Yes, Ronan? What's it for? Ronan, I think we're getting on to the area that I wanted to talk about. It means nothing. At nothing. all. Nothing. No. What does that map mean? What does that map mean? What, is all, what, is the river, what do the rivers mean on that map? Nothing. The rivers? Yeah, yeah, those rivers. Yeah, yeah. What do they mean, Sean? Um, nothing, Ronan. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely no, nothing. <laughs> None of the design of this game, or very little, means anything. Again, curious choices made with regards to the game. I know they've tried to put some flavour in with the theme, but the theme just 
doesn't really carry through. And I, to be honest, I, I'm glad they did put the theme in because without it, it would be nothing. Because I can't see anything particularly new or interesting, particularly in what they've done with the tile layer. It's the case if you have to lay some tiles, there are some rules to the tiles. They score points in a certain way. Maybe all these curious things are just to get us to notice it and remember it. Because I will remember this game. I really will for various reasons. I just don't understand it, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of lost with this game. Because you start off and they have this big description. That it's going to be about a Neolithic tribe building up their community or building up their village. And... You've got ovens and shrines, and the shrines, apart from the set collection, mean nothing. The ovens mean nothing. The only things that mean anything are just those icons for the shrines and the ovens and the colours of your houses, really. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that matters in this game. Yeah, it's almost like there's a load of extra detail on there, and it's just, I don't really know what it's there for. Is it there to distract in some way or, or to sort of, I cannot tell. I really can't. I think it would be dull without it, but why is it there? I think that we've kind of focused a bit too much on the negative here, just because we're a bit gobsmacked at some of the weird stuff that's in the game, like those rivers on the board that have seen absolutely nothing. It seems like a perfectly competent tile layer. The rules are all there. They all work. There's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't do anything particularly interesting. It doesn't particularly carry the theme off very well. It's a little bit weird. And therefore, I think it's just going to get overlooked. So I don't think it's a bad game. I'm just not convinced by it. I don't think I'd really remember it six months after playing it. So for me, it's barely a trap. But I guess it's a trap. Sean? I kind of like the look of the game, although it means nothing, the actual design of the game. It actually looks quite nice. That board is, is actually quite pleasant to look at. We'll go back to the rule book. I really struggled with the rule book, reading the same rule over and over again, thinking that it was different rules. And yeah, that took a while to get my head around. I don't like the catastrophe cards. I just It seems like a, a random punishment for either being really good or not doing so well. It's an abstract game. The art and story is just fluff. It doesn't tie together at all. It's quite a bog-standard tile layer when you get down to the nitty-gritty. So, absolute trap. That is Hoyuk. Hey, it's Ronan here. Now, in this place of the episode, we meant to put a preview in of the ancient world. Unfortunately, that file became corrupted. And as we're putting this out last minute, we've just discovered Sean is already in Essen, so we cannot re-record. So there's no preview of ancient world. All I can tell you is that we both thought it was a treasure. It looks like a really beautiful and interesting worker placement game. We're really looking forward to playing it. Sean's going to pick it up in Essen and we're going to play it. And we will do a full review in a picking over the bone episode the reason you're hearing this now is if we didn't say something i'd have had to do strange edits all the way through the episode including from the introduction we say penultimate game and what have you so rather than kind of have awkward chops and, and changes here and there i just thought i'd come in and tell you what had happened we're really sorry and we will get a proper review of ancient world to you as soon as we can so after this is going to be the outro then we're going to be playing lots of best games and you'll hear from us soon with all our thoughts and some of them we've actually played Thanks.
there we have it that is 30 games in total looked over and prediction of treasure traps attached to them we hope that we have heightened your interest and added in some way to your own preparations for Essen this year, whether you're going or not, whether you're just keeping an eye on the games, or you're heading over there and going to be filling up your suitcases. We are super excited. This is the gaming Christmas time for us gamers. We are going to be playing lots and lots of these games in the next few weeks, and you will be hearing plenty of us about them. Thank you for listening. Enjoy Essen. Enjoy the bounties of Essen. And we will catch you afterwards. As always, the Game Pit is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Head off to the Dice Tower Network where you will find an absolute plethora of gaming podcast goodness. We are also proud members of 2d6.org. Please head there for gaming goodness aplenty. We have a board game geek guild please join us there for polls and chats and discussions about many many things we have a facebook page and you can find us on twitter at game pit podcast and if you have any questions ideas for shows or generally just want to shoot the breeze you can find us on email at the game pit podcast at gmail.com music by aaron <laughs>